This episode is sponsored by Schwann's.com. What are you having for dinner tonight? Hmm, good question. Schwann's Home Delivery has a solution for you. Stock up your freezer with high-quality frozen foods like premium meats and sides, delicious ready-made meals, ice cream, and more. No subscriptions, no memberships, just a friendly yellow truck that's been delivering food for almost 70 years. Listeners of this show get a special deal. Get 20% off your first order with code YUM20. Check out schwans.com backslash yum for details. Hey, my self-isolated folks. It's week seven of lockdown, and every day we're making it. I have for you another episode of the Nth Dimension, and again, from the self-isolated quarters of my bedroom. Like the previous episode, today's topic two is UBI, and in fact, the next few episodes will be coming at this from different angles, and I have some very interesting guests, so do keep an ear out for that. The reason I am focusing on UBI over the next few episodes is because crisis time, I think, is a race for new ideas. Canada and countries over the world are being forced to air their dirty laundry in public, and there are so many elephants in the room that are demanding our attention. It is because of the economic vulnerabilities that millions and billions around the world are experiencing that unconditional basic income is garnering so much attention right now, and justly so. So here, let me introduce my guest, Floyd Marinescu, who is the CEO of UBI Works in Canada, with the goal of shifting the conversation about basic income to recognize it as an economic need and opportunity, which will hopefully culminate eventually in the implementation of UBI in Canada. So Floyd, thanks so much for joining me on the Nth Dimension today. Thank you. Glad to be here. Before we get down to business, let me ask you how you're handling self-isolated life and what you don't miss about the non-self-isolated life. What I don't miss about it? <laughs> um, yeah, honestly, how I've handled it, I created a lot of, and I'm part of a lot of peer groups. So there's a number of Zoom calls with friends and, and colleagues and and peers across the community because I've also been running a business for the last 15 years so there's a lot of entrepreneur groups I'm part of and uh, it's wonderful to have access to a lot of people that you can just talk to so I think the best things you can do is just reach out and talk to someone uh, or even ask a bunch of friends you haven't spoken to in a while just let's just get on a call together at a weekly time and just shoot the shit or just talk about how you're feeling and what's going on um, that and plus going for a walk twice a day and uh, which I'm lucky to live near a park. And, uh, and you know, those of you downtown, maybe it's not as easy, but still just get outside. So you're getting your 10,000 steps in a day. I'm not sure we're getting 10,000, <laughs> but uh, I'm feeling a lot better. Yeah. It's and, funny uh, how we're living in self-isolation, but I think I've spoken to more people in the past seven weeks than, than I have in a very <laughs> long time. The irony. Yeah. And at least what I don't miss is uh, a bit of the, the treadmill, you know, just constantly being on the go, constantly going from there to there and like keeping busy, whether it's social things or work things or whatever. So it's, uh, although I've worked remotely my, my whole life. So for me, being at home all, during the day is not new, but being at home in the evenings all the time, that's new. And, uh, and that also has its uh, benefits because uh, I'm finally going to bed early and waking up early every day. I have the perfect sleep schedule, which you couldn't <laughs> really manage when you're going out and coming home like after, late after dinners and stuff. And <laughs> Yeah, you're, you're right. Like there is a more groundedness to life these days and I'm not one to complain about that. I think it's a great opportunity for people to connect to themselves. And yeah. For some people that's very difficult to do. Sometimes we, we don't want to connect to ourselves. Yeah. A lot of friends are calling me and, and they're, they're stressed out about exactly that, you know, facing the demons in their closet. <laughs> it's a wonderful time for healing and renewal for a lot of people. <laughs> so let's get into it. Um, before I 
come at you with a few questions. Let me put out some figures. So unemployment is at 7.8%. More than 1 million Canadians have lost their jobs since March because of COVID. And unemployment levels may be higher than the 7.8% that statistics show because we do know that about 5 million Canadians, the last time I checked, applied for employment insurance or CERB. So according to that number, unemployment is probably at 25%. And then an additional 2.1 million people have worked fewer than half their normal hours or not at all between March 15 and 20. First, and now we're end of April, so that figure is probably higher. So I guess my first question for you is, what has this pandemic revealed about the Canadian socioeconomic and political fabric? What loopholes are we seeing as a result? Well, what's revealed is actually true for almost for most Western countries, is that uh, for the last 40 years, we've been seeing a changing distribution of who's earning what, what share of the economic pie is going to who. And uh, the middle class hasn't had a raise in over 40 years. Um, people in the bottom half of the, of the uh, income earners, um, many of them actually saw a decrease. I heard the bottom 10% of Canadians are actually making, I think, 10 or 20% less than they were in 1980. So as a result, we had an income crisis going into this the income crisis where people simply can't afford to get by, where nearly half of Canadians don't have $200 in case of an emergency and, and who are working. So the, the, the fact that you could have poverty while working and the fact that young people these days or people in the gig economy need, need to work 60, 80 hours a week, multiple jobs to get by is a sign that frankly our, our system has, was broken and no one knew how to fix it. And all the talk, um, all the aggregate economic statistics that you know the news likes to talk about during the last recovery, you can't really listen to those because you can't look at the aggregate average stats because the the average stats also include um, all the numbers that are fed in by uh, that include the earnings, for instance, of of people in the one percent who have taken most of the share of the gains in the last uh, forty years, and it doesn't reflect what's actually going on for the bottom half. So what, what's what's actually been going on, which is being exposed a lot by this crisis. Is, is actually technology driving uh, what economists call labor market polarization. So what some people think inequality is the problem, I actually think polarization is, is a bigger problem than inequality because if, if everyone was, was doing really well and had a lot of money, who cares if they were billionaires? That wouldn't be, really be a problem. problem is that a lot of people are in poverty and the 40-hour work week is, a, is, a, is, a, is kind of a cruel joke for people who are self-employed or in the gig economy and people are working harder and longer than their parents or grandparents did and getting less results. How could that be? In a time where technology is, is, is moving and creating incredible invention, incredible wealth is being generated, but most people are actually working harder and longer, getting less in, in return. So that's, that's a problem to sit with our system that we had going into the pandemic and coming out of the pandemic or, or in it now, we can just see how fast people went on to the CERB. Thank goodness Canada had the... Uh, the courage and the speed to do that. Eight, I think nine million people are on the CERB now. Yeah. Can I ask you to speak a bit about what you said in the middle that you don't think inequality is the problem as much as polarization? What do you mean by that? A lot of people say inequality is the big problem. I think inequality is, uh, is what comes after you have polarization of, of earnings. Uh, if, and what if do everyone, you mean by that? So labor market polarization means the middle class is shrinking and what you're seeing is growth at, at both ends of the labor market. So how is it that in this time of after more than a 10 year economic recovery that the share of jobs in Canada that are low income has been growing? 
shouldn't the share of jobs that are can be decreasing? As in more people are entering the middle class? As in a rising tide lifts all boats? Well, it's not. Like the wealth is not trickling down. It's trickling up. Mm. So, so polarization is the problem because you're seeing half the country getting more impoverished in money, wealth, and time. Where for the first time, I saw this New York Times article that millennials will, by the time they're, um, the current cohort of millennials in their 30s, have 2% of the overall net, worth, net wealth in the country versus their parents' generation when they were 30 had 20% and then their grandparents' generation had 30% of the net wealth. That's polarization where, where half the country cannot earn because and the, reason, the main reason is technological job displacement. Whereas new technology t- does more and more of the tasks, this reduces the demand for, for wage labor and causes more competition for the jobs that are left and causes less less stress, less demand for raised wages. Uh, and that's actually what's been happening now for the last 40 years. Every single economic recovery we've had has left the middle class and the bottom half worse off in terms of the ability to earn an income and, and accumulate wealth. And that polarization is, is a problem. Yes, you are right that more and more young people are working precarious jobs. They're working further away from home, uh, the gig economy, contract job, and essentially like I think in the, under the facade of freedom uh, that you get to determine your own hours and you get to decide how much you work. And I think this is more of a garb than the truth. So I do have some stats again. 31% of Canadians have no savings beyond one week. 27% only have enough for two to four weeks. And 20% have up to three months of saving. So this is a country that is one of the most richest, most developed countries in the world. So what does this say about what is the state of our economy right now and the way that people are working in it with you know more than one job, two to three jobs, and still not being able to lift themselves up um, in the in the class ladder. What what does this say about our society? The polarization of opportunity, the polarization of ability to to, to work to actually earn a better life, to, to 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 gain more free time through your hard work, the ability to enter the middle class. I mean, that's mostly broken. The middle class is shrinking. Uh, so what does that say? It says it's a, it's a society that is not sustainable, is moving in the wrong direction because you cannot have a society that is becoming so highly polarized where the bottom half is getting more impoverished of time and of money over time. Where is that going to go? And we can see that in a lot of different statistics. We're seeing that the share of income going to the bottom half of the country decreased by 30% since 1980 versus the share of income going to the 1% increased by, I think, more than 80%. Like, how, Where will that end? Mm. I mean, if you, look, if you look at those graphs and you just extend the lines out a little bit, eventually it'll be the bottom half of the country making like five cents on the dollar and the 1% making like 40 cents on the dollar. Like that, that's no longer a democracy. That's, a, that's feudalism. And that's not mm. how people imagine the society that we're, we're in. And that is primarily driven by technology. And technology has been the primary driver of all the other trends people like to blame in terms of what's, what is impacting inequality and quality of work. Technology has driven globalization. Technology has driven the gig economy. Uh, the invention of, of mobile phones is, is, is enabled the gig economy. There wasn't much of that before they had mobile phones. Um, you know, to, to, uh, cloud computing has brought down the costs of almost everything. It, it brought up the sites like Amazon that can do things more efficiently and is displacing retail. Um, winner takes all economics is also a factor of the internet where you can now have um, global brands that dominate in every category instead of local brands that, that you would buy all your stuff from. So, I mean, at the end of the day, frankly, I think the, the issue is that we have an economic system that's missing a, a key part of the plumbing that should have been there from the beginning. And that part of the plumbing 
is meant to recirculate these gains to ensure everyone is above basic needs and everyone has a chance to make to, to make the best opportunity in their life and that that plumbing is a basic income so speak um, to that speak about that a bit more um how can you elaborate on how you think giving people an extra x number of dollars to every individual how do you think that will give them the power to negotiate for a better job negotiate for a better life circulate money can you speak to that a bit sure um if you take the number of a thousand dollars a month that is a massive raise for all canadians a thousand dollars a month and assuming let's say that would be the number uh, would allow people to work a part-time job and still have a reasonable quality of life uh, it would certainly allow people in the gig economy to work to work 40 hours a week and actually reclaim the 40-hour work week which is a societal innovation that's been lost um, it, so the economic stimulus argument yeah that's certainly there but what it does is it's actually channeling the effects of automation globalization when it takes all economics back to lift up everyone and I argue that that's actually something that is not charity. It's not a social program. It, it is a public utility. It's something that we need to do because technology is naturally concentrating wealth. It's naturally displacing wage labor. We're seeing many decades of the share of our national income that goes to work shift instead to capital, meaning going to shareholders because businesses can do more with less, more with less people. Where is that going to end? If that continues on and on and literally more is being produced without people, then where do people fit into that equation? So a basic income framed as a dividend, as in money that we get, getting our share of the economic pie, is not a social program. It's an economic utility that gives us all a share of the economy, gives us all a share of, of the gains of automation. It's more of a tech check than anything else, which frankly, I think is, it needs to be the next major societal innovation. The labor movement brought us the weekend. It brought us the eight-hour workday. Uh, it, it brought us paid sick days. The next thing it can do is, is bring us the ability to work part-time when you have a low-income job, if that's all you can find around you because technology has been displacing so much other work. That's, that is an, an aspect of human prosperity that we're lacking. The, the late, you know, the next, this next innovation, having a dividend uh, off the gains from, from our economic growth, can mm -hmm. give everyone, restore the ladders into the middle class and, and also prevent the, the, the uh, labor market polarization that I mentioned to you because everybody would be, have the means to invest in a better future, the means to seek out better and a better education, to wait it out till they get a job that better fits them. Um, I remember reading an article that there's no magic formula to economic growth. Nothing has worked the same way everywhere at any, every point in time in any country, except for one thing, misallocation of resources. The efficient allocation of resources is what causes growth. And I think a basic income is very much solving misallocation because you're, you're actually giving a basic amount of money that is needed for people to reach their potential, to find their greatest expression of usefulness in life, the best job that suits them, that would allow them to be the most productive, to resist work that is not well suited for them. And frankly, to also cause uh, an increase in pay for certain kinds of jobs, where, you know, because the jobs that are least desirable will have to pay more. There's a reason that, that people... Otherwise, work, why would people want to do it? Yeah, there's a reason why people who work garbage trucks get paid very well, I think 50, 60K salaries. How come the people who work garbage trucks get paid better than, than cashiers? How does that make any sense? So, <laughs> so a basic income would allow people to resist and, and, um, and negotiate better pay, but also would allow other kinds of jobs to pay a lot less. For instance, maybe you want to work for free. Maybe you want to do volunteering, caregiving. Uh, you want more time to to help your community. And maybe you survive on your basic income doing that. Maybe you want to 
work on a, in a quasi nonprofit company that, that doesn't really make a profit, but you, you believe in the mission. So you can survive off your basic income and maybe a small bonus that they give you. Like that's all good for society. And uh, so I think that basic income actually is a deregulated way to achieve the same goals as minimum wage uh, without forcing people and also pre preventing certain kinds of work arrangements that, that society needs. So let me ask you uh, something about UBI within the context that we are in right now. Number one, if there was a UBI in place already and then we had entered this crisis, how would the response of the government have been different or how would anxieties be more allayed right now? Would people be feeling less vulnerable if we had $2,000 a month going in as opposed to having call, CRA, apply, you know, jump through hoops. Um, as easy as the process has been, it's not been easy for a lot of folks. How would it have been different than the position we are in right now? Oh, it would have been so much better. Imagine it would have been two months ago that the government could have implemented social distancing restrictions. People would have already have had the money that they needed. You know, so if you're already, uh, let's say, had a job where you're making $50,000, uh, on top of your basic income, or it depends if it was uh, an, uh, an income floor style. If it was an income floor style, you just, you know, you'd stay home. If your job, if your boss has to lay you off, you go home, you call the government saying, well, I'm, I'm, I'm missing this income now. They would simply raise your top up because the basic income already exists. The system would already be there. Or if it was a, a dividend, like a fixed amount everyone gets, people already know what they get and, and they can live off that. But the government could also instantaneously increase the payments to everyone in the country. Imagine if like literally within a day, everyone's payments simply increased because the system was already in place. But what uh, about folks who have who were laid off and now they are only relying on $2,000 a month? I mean, it's good, but it's by no means you know, enough, it, 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 it's enough to cover basic needs, but it's not, you know, it's not enough to realize yourself and live a good life, you know? So what about folks who are now only relying on $2,000 a month? There is no top up. Uh, well, it's called the basic income for a reason. It's basic. Uh, so the point is that you take starvation, you take stigma, you take shame, you take all those things off the table. People find arrangements in their life to make the money work longer, which includes part-time work. And, that, and that's not a bad thing. No, what I guess what I'm asking is that, you know, there are a group of people, like, let me come to the cohort of young people, for example. We're, we're going to have a lot of uh, young people graduating into an economy this year that is weak. Um, I spoke to someone who said that she feels that she's at the bottom, at the bottom most of the food chain because of the skills that she doesn't have compared to people who've been in the industry. Now, entering a market that is essentially dead, and now you're relying on 2000 bucks a month, that's great that at least there is assistance, but how does, in the big picture, how does that allay your anxieties, knowing that you've come into the market with a lot of energy, a lot of ambition, but that doesn't exist, but here exists social support. So how do you navigate that space as someone who is fresh into the market and ready to work, with the desire to work? Well, what basic income takes off the table is fear is of starvation, fear of having to do dead-end work just to get by. It gives you hope and opportunity. So if, I mean, when I was 22, if, if I came out and I was in that situation, 
I would be spending time doing tutorials online, learning what I need to learn, building projects, building my resume, building a portfolio. The point is that you can make your life work around $2,000 a month. It's, it's not a glamorous life. It's basic. Maybe you have two or three roommates. You share the costs and you, and you make your, build your portfolio. And frankly, it's unfortunate that young people these days, unfortunately, I think have to do a lot more independent consulting and build portfolio building because there's simply just the economy is moving away from uh, full-time permanent positions uh, slowly but surely. So um, you know, this, this, the other side of the coin of freedom is, is lack of a skills building ladder that typically an employer would provide you. So mm -hmm. you have to do it yourself. And that, that's an unfortunate side effect. But it would allow you to do that. You would have time to do that. You would be able to go out there, go on Upwork and pitch yourself out. Maybe you got to pitch yourself on Upwork for certain kinds of jobs that are uh, pay less than you'd want to charge. But after you build your resume up, then you can charge more. Uh, so it gives everyone hope that they can make it in a better future because they have the time and the runway as opposed to what, what the current system does. Let's say, like say our, our, our brothers and sisters down South where they, they don't have hope. They're, they're dealing with starvation. There's like lines of like miles long of cars waiting for food banks. The amount of time people have to spend just navigating poverty um, in, in countries like the U S or even in, in Canada for people who are not on the CERB, it's, it's very time consuming. This reclaims yeah. your time and time I think is, is a fundamental, not only a human right, but, but time is like, time is wealth and basic income all, uh, uh, it lets you, again, solves misallocation, lets you allocate your time in the way that you see best fit for your better future. And I, I don't buy the argument that a lot of people just like want to coast on a small amount of money like that. Maybe they would for a short period of time, but They're the data doesn't outliers. show that. Yeah, the data right. doesn't show that. Like 105,000 people have already been on a basic income and there was no reduction in labor participation. Uh, that's from 16 studies done in the last 50 years. Uh, everybody wants to, to self-actualize. People want to be useful. I think being useful is the highest calling for every human being. Everybody wants to be useful in some way, shape, or form. Some people's usefulness does not intersect with a paid job. Well, at least for them, basic income helps them find a different way of contributing to, to their community. But for everyone else, it's a platform you can build on and achieve greater heights in life because you can you can leap towards things you want to do much faster and not waste a lot of time doing dead-end jobs first. Mm. What I'm hearing is that UBI is based on the premise, and correct me if I'm wrong, is it based on the premise uh, that time is more valuable than money? And that's kind of antagonistic to the neoliberal structure that we live in, which values profit over anything. So would UBI challenge that premise? Um, it's different things to different people because uh, something I like to often remind people is that some of the greatest champions for uh, the modern free market system, uh, uh, some of the greatest economists who, who our system is based on uh, were for a basic income. Uh, Friedrich Hayek was a libertarian icon. He was for it because he saw it. He, he, he believed in the power of the market to make better decisions than central committees. And he, frankly, I think he, he was right. Uh, but however, he also knew that you cannot allow from a libertarian perspective, one, one group to become an underclass that becomes exploited and, and vulnerable to, uh, to others. A libertarian is fundamentally about freedom. And I, I remind libertarians that if you're for freedom, you should be for someone's freedom of choice, which means freedom to choose a good life and freedom to resist oppression. And that requires money. It's just yeah. simple as that. It requires money. And, and Friedrich Hayek knew that. So he wanted to have a basic income in place so that our, our free market system doesn't create private centers of power that can dominate just as much as any government could. And then Milton Friedman was also for it. He, he was a free market economist on whose ideas that the modern neoliberal order was based. He was for it too, because 
in the time when capitalism was in cold war with communism, that's when a thousand economists in the United States uh, signed a letter saying basic income is compatible with American values. And that's when Friedrich, when uh, Milton Friedman was pushing it because this is when uh, capitalism had to prove itself as being better than communism and being better at uplifting everyone and leveraging that, that, that wonderful vigor of the human spirit to achieve better, better heights in life. And the basic income can ensure everyone has that opportunity in life. Uh, Milton Friedman was famous for saying that the role of government is not to ensure that we all end the race at the same time, but we all start the race at the same line. And the basic income does that. It creates a floor that, that er no one falls beneath, so everyone can start a bit further ahead in life than, than say, the previous generation. So that's why I kind of scoff when I hear all these uh, uh, elderly people on Facebook saying, oh, when I was young, I had to like uh, walk one to 10 miles to school, and uh, why should young people like uh, have it any easier than me? Well, isn't that the whole point? Like, we should be making it a bit easier for the next generation to, to go further than we did and faster? That's mm -hmm. the whole point, and basic income does that. <laughs> Yeah, that's a really good point that, you know, progressively our lives should be getting better and easier and it doesn't necessarily seem to be going in that direction. Well, um, it, it hasn't because technology has fundamentally decreased the value of human work, especially for people with a high school, high school degree. So that's why we're seeing uh, median wages have been stagnant for 40 years and, and the bottom half of the country has been has been stagnant or in many cases decreasing and all the gains have gone to the top 40 percent but mainly it's at the top 10 percent and one percent so the basic income reverses that and brings us back to the kind of distribution of income from the value of work that that we had before computers were invented that we had back when the golden age of capitalism was 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 happening so we should go back there like that's how we can renew our economic system and ensure that that we can preserve freedom and preserve all the incentives um, in the market that can that can um, continue evolving and innovating is to have a basic income. It's the missing link. It's the missing plumbing. I think I read this on uh, your on on your website on UBI Works's website um, about creating a system of human centered capitalism. Yeah. Can you speak about that a bit? And what center of capitalism are we living in now? Then, <laughs> well. Again, given that Milton Friedman and Hayek, who uh, people would say are, are responsible for shareholder capitalism, uh, given that they were also for a basic income, you know, I, I think uh, that part was conveniently conveniently left out as as powerful, you know, forces uh, kept changing the system in favor of uh, of increasing gains for the super wealthy. Um, so, I mean, the system we're in now is is a, a form of broken capitalism that forgot to li that to lift the lifting all boats requires money. There's this, there's a saying that a, a rising tide lifts all boats. Well, it's not. Wealth is not trickling down. So, so the way it, it, the way it trickles up is through a basic income. So you, you ensure there's a floor that no one falls under. So everyone can get as far as their heart and their 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 courage can take them. Uh, that would be human-centered capitalism. If if the economic system is literally paying you a check every month, you are now a shareholder as much as any other wealthy shareholder, and you can then use that money and 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 to the way you see fit to make better choices in life. And ultimately, it's about better choices and individual freedom. You know how they say that democracy is like for the people, by the people, of the people, and it's essentially, like you said, for you to, a, a free and, and liberated space for individuals to realize themselves. So in that sense, what is an economy for? Like what, what purpose does it serve other than just the circulation of money? <laughs> the purpose of an economy is to uplift its peoples. And, an, and the economic system of free market capitalism 
is responsible for the greatest innovations that have lifted up humanity. Before the Industrial Revolution, most people lived, had a much shorter lifespan. Um, you know, it's pretty much every indicator of human prosperity began, was flat for like tens of thousands of years and began increasing after the Industrial Revolution. Why? Because uh, free market incentives drive profit incentive, which drives innovation, which drives people to make decisions and, and, uh, and, and optimize their environment and solve problems for other people, solving problems, creating, pro creating products that people want. And, and that has driven technological innovation, as well as government, frankly, because you need, you need a central force that will invest in things that are beyond the imagination or the risk tolerance of entrepreneurs. So much of the technology that we have that, that current entrepreneurship is based on has been driven by public financing through research and academia. You need all sides, right? But, um, but innovation, technology is the child of capitalism and technology is now what is eating capitalism because we haven't installed this missing bit of plumbing to ensure that the gains from technology are shared broadly uh, through everyone. And that is what a basic income does. So the purpose of an economic system should be to uplift its peoples, to organize people for to help ensure progress and i think a free market system with a generous basic income is how you do that it, it'll encourage more automation uh, because if, if people who work at mcdonald's say i'm not going to work there unless you give me like 25 bucks an hour well mcdonald's will automate it faster and those people then will be free to they'll go back to school and learn something do something better like that's good like that's how innovation happens yeah and can you tell can you speak a bit about you know, as we are sort of trudging along the evolution of humanity, it is getting harder and harder to not talk about um, the climate crisis in anything that we do talk about. So if UBI is going to shift the center of focus of capitalism from just making profits to um, uplifting humanity and like helping them go higher in the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, then how do you how do you suppose that UBI might also help address the climate crisis? Because it resolves people's fear. When you're not, when you're not afraid, you're going to vote more progressive. You're going to take care of, of, of our, your long-term needs. You make better long-term decisions. And it's been proven that people who are financially afraid um, often operate from a, an IQ of a one standard deviation uh, lower because they're, they're, they're in time of crisis. They say that people uh, in, in more of a scarcity mentality make better short-term decisions, but poor long-term decisions. And people who, who are in an abundance mentality make better long-term decisions, but poor short-term ones. So when you're in an environment where every party is constantly saying jobs, 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 and, and like you fear mongering about economic growth, then um, it's hard to, to, to vote for the Green Party <laughs> or, or it's hard for any party to adopt a, a very green, um, a green perspective because people are afraid and, and, and they're all operating within this mental paradigm that whatever we have to do, we have to create jobs. But the fact is that job creation has not resulted in, 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 in creating a lot of prosperity for people. Like economic growth and productivity growth have decoupled from wage growth a long time ago. That's really important to know. It used to be that productivity growth from technology was raising wages uh, consistently year after year. And that all stopped after the invention of computers and, and after the invention of robotics. And, and that continued staying flat. Wage growth at the median wage stayed flat for the last 40 years since the innovation of modern computing and robotics. And that's not going to change. And actually since uh, in the last 20 years, even GDP growth decoupled from job growth. So we're actually seeing more being produced and exchanged with less jobs being created. And some of the top economic economics researchers studying the, the phenomenon of automation 
have said, look, uh, automation displaces jobs. It also creates new work that didn't exist before. But we're seeing a slowdown in the amount of new work being created. And this slowdown is why we're seeing wage polarization and we're seeing, growth, uh, we're seeing a lack of growth in wages. So the politicians haven't caught up with this fact. When they're out there saying we're going to create more jobs, but yet jobs aren't actually resulting in meaningful wage growth, then everyone's falling behind while only like the 1% are winning and the whole system leads to collapse like we're in right now. Do you see it creating, do you see it redirecting jobs from the fossil fuel industry and perhaps allaying the anxieties of workers who are in that industry and they have the right to feel anxious because the government is not being transparent about, you know, what is the future for this sunset fossil fuel industry. So like you said, they are voting in fear and they're voting to keep an industry in place that is going to shut down. So do you see this as a mechanism to, you know, redirect their skills in another direction and create jobs somewhere else? Well, nobody making 90,000 a year in oil industries can be happy on uh you know, an unbased income, right? It's certainly not uh, uh, not, not an exchange, uh, but what a base, but what a base income does is ensure that starvation and, and, and shame and, and uh, just all those things are off the table so that if you do lose your job, you can make better choices in life. And um, so I do think also that, that the government is supporting you, that they're not just letting you hang high and dry. It ultimately gives you more choice. So if you are in the oil industry and, you're, you're, and you can see the writing on the wall that within probably 30 years, solar is going to be way cheaper than oil. Well, it, then you can invest in your future now. You can do some part-time work, retrain yourself, go back to school and figure out how to get into the new industry. Um, ultimately, it lets everyone make better long-term choices. So let me lastly ask you this. Um, Scott Santons said that I was listening to one of his podcasts and he said that Doug Ford repealed the um, UBI experiment in Ontario because it was uh, because it was getting successful and he saw that there is success at the end of that tunnel. So realistically, do you or rather, when do you see the possibility of a UBI being rolled out in Ontario, Canada, and what does that path look like? Yeah, well, at UBI Works, we uh, we had a mandate to uh, propose a, uh, a, a dividend-style basic income and promote it to the point of making it... Uh, um, it's a defining election issue in 2023. We thought we have three years, let's get this going. Let's build support. Let's get hundreds of thousands of people signing on. Let's build an activist network. And all that kind of got up, upended with, uh, with the COVID crisis. And uh, so now we're trying to figure out what's our next strategy. And it, there is a unique moment in time here where 9 million Canadians are on the CERB and a lot of them are not going to have jobs to go back to. Uh, because every time we've had an economic crisis, businesses do what people do. They learn to do more with less. They learn to work more efficiently. They reach out for technologies that exist then that they didn't have to bother with when the times were good and they just kept hiring to keep up with demand. And the technology that exists today is an order of magnitude more better than more efficient than what existed in 2008. Imagine this, 2008, I mean, we didn't have Airbnb. Uh, we didn't have Uber. Facebook was only a couple years old for most people. Like, it's a whole different world right now. Mobile computing was, was fairly new back then. So the kind of technology that exists today with artificial intelligence and cloud computing and all these things is like, like businesses can do way more uh, than before. And we're already seeing a huge sp spike in industrial automation as businesses are literally having to automate to work because people are at, can't come into work because of COVID. So they're not going to hire those people back. We're going to see a situation where possibly millions of people can't go back to work. And that's, that's a time of crisis, unfortunately, the government's going to have to address. And, I and we're going to do whatever we can to make sure that the solution is a permanent 
long-term runway in the form of a basic income because those millions of people are going to need more time to make better long-term decisions for their life, which is what a basic income is about, whether it's, whether it's about retraining, going back to school, um, just you know, just relocating to where the jobs are. Um, a basic income will provide the flexibility in the labor market that we're going to need and a, a bigger runway for those people. So we have a unique moment in time right now uh, to, to, to for, push for basic income, and that's what UBI Works will be doing. Yeah, thank you. And I, and, I, and I hope that you are right that as we come out of this pandemic, at some point it will end. I hope that in the battle of ideas, UBI is, is the winner. Um, <laughs> it, it does seem like the missing piece of puzzle and, you know, that one piece of plumbing that you say. So thank you so much, Floyd, for joining me on The End Dimension. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you from the third dimension. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Folks, you know the drill. Follow, like, share. I'm on Twitter at the underscore nth dimension. If you are listening on Apple, then leaving a comment will really help me out. Good ones, please. No hate. Stars will help too. Five, hopefully. No less than three, I demand. But we live in a free world. Star as you please. But I think most importantly, spreading the word, spreading information is going to help us in creating good for the greater number of people. I'm just out here trying to spread information, not the virus, just information. And, you know, like in the economy, we are coming to realize that trickle down is not working for most of us. Um, And income and wealth needs to flow from the bottom up. And I think just like that, we need to start spreading information and knowledge and create awareness um, among each other and hopefully we can use that awareness to pressure our leaders, our MPs, our politicians into pushing policies that work for all of us and take all of us forward. So thank you for listening. Thank you for giving me your time and your ears for the past 40 minutes and keep washing those hands. When you're ready to ride Metro, we want you to know we're ready for you. Here are just a few of the people at Metro to tell you how we're doing our part to keep riders safe. We're cleaning like never before, but hospital grade cleaning. You'll find hand sanitizer stations all over the Metro. No mask, no Metro. Need one? We have a few extras. At Metro, we're doing our part to keep the D.C. area moving. Find out more at wmata.com slash doingourpart.